call the Foreign Relations Committee to order, and I want to thank everyone for, for being here. Um, I want to thank our witnesses, which uh, I know will be invaluable in helping us uh, understand this topic. I want to thank Senator Cardin for agreeing to have this hearing and for changing the time. Uh, we had a little blow up on the Senate floor yesterday, which changed our committee process to a degree. And I want to thank him so much for being so cooperative on all issues and working with us. I'd like to, on the front end, talk about what this is not about today. This is, to me, not about the substance of any treaty. That's not what this is about. Um, I actually have been a part of uh, supporting arms control treaties. Um, I think I played a, a pivotal role, as a matter of fact, in the New START Treaty um, when we were able uh, to, to do things that enhanced our nation's security by getting commitments uh, towards modifica uh, modification of our nuclear program, modernization of our nuclear program, where we have warheads and guidance systems that are outdated, and we had the through that process, we got the administration to commit to that modernization, which they've been on pace, not quite at the levels we'd like for them to be. Uh, over the course of time, there's been a little bit of a detour this year, uh, unfortunately, but uh, it's moved along to a degree. Uh, we had commitments on missile defense that were part of the RUDs that I helped craft. And, uh, and look, I'm proud of what I did in that particular case, and this is not about being against uh, arms control. Um, this is about one thing, and that is all of us run to serve in the United States Senate. Uh, we come here, we know what a privilege it is to weigh in on important issues. Um, and this is really about one thing, uh, regardless of who's in president, regardless of who's chairman of the committee, uh, regardless of who is serving, and that is to ensure that the Senate plays its appropriate role as it relates to international agreements. Uh, this agreement could be about apple pie, and I would be bringing this hearing together. So I just want to, again, try to set the context, and I know that Senator Cardin and I have talked about this uh, on a couple of occasions. This is not about trying to pass judgment on the comprehensive test ban agreement. That's not what this is about. It's about trying to understand what it is the administration is doing. They're on the way out the door. We understand that administrations try to create legacies. And there is a concern, I think it's a legitimate concern, about going to the UN Security Council and bypassing the Senate, possibly. And that's what this is about. We haven't seen the language yet. But possibly causing something to, in essence, become binding. I know that today our policy relative to testing is that we don't test. And that's, that's fine with me. That's a policy. Um, it's been a policy that's been around for some time. What I'm concerned about is that the administration is taking steps that possibly, again, we haven't seen the language, could take that policy and turn it into something that is binding, binding um, through customary, customary international law down the road, which makes it difficult, which makes it difficult for a future administration who may want to have a different policy for whatever reasons from being, being able to move in that direction. I, I read a brief, uh, I wrote a letter to, by the way, I did write a letter to the administration regarding this, and I want to thank them. Uh, well, first of all, I called Samantha Powell and asked her to tell me what it is they were up to. She wrote me a letter, which I appreciate greatly. 
because of ambiguities that existed in that letter, I wrote a letter to the president telling him I had significant concerns um, because uh, some of the language certainly had ambiguities and could in fact be interpreted to be something that creates customary international law, which, is, which, which could create some binding effects on future administrations. I just got back today, I haven't read it, it was just handed to me, it's still hot. Um, I just got back a response to that letter, which I, again, I appreciate, and we certainly will look at that. But we went through, um, we went through and looked at, at what is happening here. This ma gentleman named David Koplow, who is a professor of Georgetown Law, who basically has written the playbook for the administration or for anyone who wishes to cause something to be binding, binding on our country through going straight to the UN Security Council versus causing something to be brought to Congress and through the United States Senate to have a treaty ratified. And so it looks to me like that, I don't know if they even know this gentleman, I don't know this gentleman, it looks to me like based on what's happening that they are following, if you will, a game plan that has been laid out again, they may have laid it out themselves. So I just have concerns and I appreciate having two uh, brilliant people here before us to help us with this. I want to reiterate with my good friend, uh, uh, Senator Markey coming in. Senator Markey, to me, this is, has nothing to do with the substance of the treaty itself. It has to do with the fact that uh, you are a respected senator from Massachusetts. You have a role to play here in determining things that bind us as it relates to foreign policy. And I just want to make sure that we are not allowing uh, an administration on the way out the door to do something that ends up binding us through customary international law down the road uh, in taking actions at the UN Security Council that I'd, I would deem to be inappropriate if that were the case. So with that, thank you uh, for your patience and let me speak m longer than I normally do, uh, Senator Cardin, our great ranking member. And I think that we agree on this topic, and that is, and I'll be very specific because I don't want to speak for you, and that is that we want to make sure that we do everything we can together to preserve the prerogatives of this committee, preserve the prerogatives of the United States Senate in being able to carry out our, our responsibilities. This is my editorial comment that I'll add on. I'll just tell you, I've watched through the years, and the responsibilities of the United States Senate have eroded have eroded, and I, I, I'm just here today with this hearing and pushing back against the administration to try, to try to make sure that we do everything we can to ensure that that is not something that continues. So with that, uh, again, our distinguished uh, ranking member and my friend, Senator Cardin. Well, Chairman Corker, thank you uh, for um, calling this hearing, and I certainly concur in your observations as to uh, the prerogatives of the United States Congress and the Senate. We uh, do not have any proposed language that the administration is seeking in regards to United Nations actions, so we are going right now by uh, what has been presented to us by the administration. And I have been told that, it will, that what is being uh, negotiated would not legally affect the actions of the United States um, in regards to the prerogatives of the United States Congress or the prerogatives of the United States Senate in ratification of a treaty. Uh, you reference a letter we got today dated September 7th uh, from Secretary Kerry 
I am, was reading it not to, I didn't observe every word that you said, but I was reading it as you were giving your opening statement. And uh, I, I'll read one sentence out of that this, uh, letter, which says, we are not proposing and will not support the adoption of the UN Security Council resolution imposing a legally binding prohibition on nuclear testing. So um, I would ask that that letter from Secretary Kerry be made part of our record. And without objection. So uh, we do need to talk a little bit about the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty because it's kind of unique. Uh, of course, every treaty has some unique features to it. Uh, we will celebrate this month the 20th anniversary of the adoption by the United Nations General Assembly of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Uh, it was um, ratified uh, by 164 nations, if my staff information is correct. Uh, it has not yet entered into force, and I think we all will agree that it is unlikely that it will enter into force, not because the United States has not ratified the treaty, because it requires ratification by countries that haven't signed it and show no interest in signing it, such as North Korea. Um, and uh, such as, uh, unfortunately, Pakistan and India. So uh, there are several, and Iran would, would have to sign the treaty and, uh, and ratify it, and we're not expecting to get cooperation there. So it's unlikely that this treaty is going to go into effect any time in the near future. Uh, but since 1992, the United States policy has been to impose a moratorium on nuclear explosive testing. Uh, that was proposed by President George Herbert Walker Bush and supported by the United States Congress. Uh, that was done regardless of the ratification of the treaty. It was thought to be the, the right policy for America and one of which uh, I certainly believe is in our best interest. President Clinton then tried to enshrine that in uh, the negotiations of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. None of us want to live in a world as we did during the Cold War where nuclear tests were a regular frightening occurrence, a reminder of the terrible destructive power of these weapons. I think the United States is safer and the world is a better place without nuclear testing. So the real question, Mr. Chairman, is that the administration has indicated that there will be no legal impact in what they're talking about in the United Nations. Why are we doing this in the United Nations? And I think that's the question we all should be asking. And it seems to me that what we are attempting to do is to get more countries to follow the policy that we adopted in 1992 and not to do active nuclear testing. Why? Because it's in our national security interests and in the security interests of the global community. If nuclear tests could be verifiably ended worldwide, the United States would disproportionately benefit. We don't need nuclear tests to ensure our weapons are effective or secure. Year after year, our national laboratory directories have certified the stockpile storage program provides us with 100% confidence that the United States nuclear weapons are reliable without testing. We don't need nuclear active testing to have our deterrent stockpile. It's the countries that are trying to develop a stronger capacity in nuclear weapons that could benefit by active nuclear testing. It's those countries that we don't want to test. It's in our national security interest that they don't test. Therefore, as I look at this, if, the, if we are capable of putting more pressure on those countries not to test, it's in our national security interest. 
the world we seek is the one president reagan saw it in his second inaugural address and i quote president reagan we're not just discussing limits on a future increase of nuclear weapons we seek instead to reduce their number we seek the total elimination one day of nuclear weapons from the face of the earth i certainly agree with president reagan in that desire and it seems to me the actions that the obama administration is taking now might be furthering that objective by getting countries that could develop greater capacity for nuclear to have the pressure of the p five the world leaders to say we're not testing and we believe you should not test and that we will continue to pursue avenues to enforce that through our individual actions in our countries so i look forward to hearing from our witnesses and i certainly agree with the chairman that this is an important subject for the senate foreign relations committee we have the jurisdiction in the senate on treaty ratification a legal document needs to have the support of congress well thank you i somewhat regret that we moved into the subject of the treaty as part of the discussion because to me again it's not even relevant to our discussion but you know i'm sorry you know it's 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 somewhat unfortunately it happens around here where they but anyway i regret that i i do want to say that there are ways that the administration can go to the un security council and create something that on its surface at the un security council is not legally binding but over time especially because of certain things that we agree to with the vienna convention which again we've never ratified over time makes it something that is customary international law so we have some witnesses here today who will help us think that through i hope that's not the case i certainly agree with the comments that president reagan made again and unfortunately i hope this doesn't devolve this whole discussion into whether we should have a test ban treaty or not but that we focus on the substance not of the treaty but of just the un security actions itself and how it might affect future administrations that's that's to me the only thing that matters i will say the test ban treaty was voted down was voted down i will say that two of our internationalists to use mr crapon's words dick ruger and john warner voted against it and so i just want to ensure i'm not saying as to how i would vote or not vote on a treaty we haven't had any debate i just want to make sure that nothing is occurring that usurps the responsibilities that we have as united states senators whether it's a good treaty bad treaty to me is not the issue today it's whether something can be done at the united nations that usurps our role it can we know that can happen hopefully there's a degree of pushback that will occur as a part of this hearing to ensure that that is not the case mr chairman if i might just short reply the test ban treaty is not going to go into effect in the near future that is i think a pretty safe statement to say it's also i believe a safe statement to say that it's in our national security interest to preserve and expand moratorium on nuclear testing so the question is 
what actions can the United States take? And in that context, we had this hearing on potential action in the United Nations. You and I both agree that that action should not compromise the prerogatives of the United States Congress or the United States Senate. And I agree with you completely on that, and that's why I think this hearing is very important. But I also believe that we need to pursue policies that preserve and expand the moratorium that's been in effect since 1992 unilaterally in the United States. It's interesting, under George W. Bush's administration, where he openly said he would not seek the ratification of the uh, Test Ban Treaty, he did not notif notify that he was withdrawing, and he maintained the moratorium. So I, I think yeah. the issue you're raising is a very important issue on the legalities of what we're dealing with here, but the underlying strategy on how do we stop emerging nuclear powers from testing is an important issue that needs to be dealt with, and the Obama administration, I believe, is using its opportunities at the United Nations to advance that, not to advance the treaty. Well, I, I hope that is the case, and because we haven't seen the language, right. there's no way for us to know that, and uh, we have two people here today who can help us think through what that language might and might not do. With us, our first witness is the Honorable Stephen Rademacher of the Podesta Group. Mr. Rademacher is a former State Department Assistant Secretary for several bureaus, including arms control, international security, and nonproliferation. He has also served in the White House Counsel's Office and as a staffer here in the Senate. He has written and spoken extensively on the CTBT. Our second witness today is Mr. Michael Crapon, co-founder of the Stimson Center an internationally recognized leading think tank focused on global security issues. Mr. Crapon has written extensively on the threat of nuclear weapons, and I want to thank you both for being here, for sharing your thoughts and viewpoints. Um, your full statements will be entered into the record without objection. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, if you could speak for about five minutes, you've been here before, you understand the process, we'd appreciate it, and we look forward to our questions and answers. And truly, I think for most of us, um, this is a uh, deepening of understanding hearing, and we thank you both for contributing to that. So with that, Mr. Rademacher. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and, and Ranking Member Cardin, uh, members of the committee. Uh, it's a great honor to be invited to appear today, and, and I thank you for that. Uh, I want to note at the outset that, uh, that I work at one of uh, D.C.'s large public affairs firms, uh, and Notwithstanding that, I'm appearing here in a purely personal capacity. I'm expressing only my own views, not the views of my firm or any of its clients. Uh, I, I want to uh, strongly agree with what Chairman Corker said at the outset about um, the issues here. I, I think there are two issues. One is, is the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty a good idea or a bad idea? And that, that was extensively debated in the past and it will probably be extensively debated in the future. Um, but I think there's a second issue that, that's more timely, and I, I devoted my prepared statement to that second issue. The second issue is the process by which the Obama administration appears to be going about trying to advance the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. And I hope everyone in this room would agree that uh, the administration could have the most worthy objective in the world, but if it's violating the U.S. Constitution or trampling on the prerogatives of this committee to achieve that worthy objective, that's a problem. And so I, th I think, as the chairman indicated, the, the question we should be asking is, is what the administration propose, is proposing to do here a problem from the point of view of the United States Constitution or the prerogatives of this committee, which in essence are 
I think the, the relevant one is the prerogative of this committee and the, and the United States Senate to approve the imposition of binding international legal obligations on the United States. Uh, you know, basic, basic constitutional issue. Does the president have the authority to do that on his own, or does he, does he have that authority only with the approval of the United States Senate? And I think traditionally the answer of the Senate has been an emphatic that the Senate has to approve. I mean, no binding legal international, international legal obligations without approval of the Senate. So um, is the administration doing something here that would violate that principle? Uh, Mr. Chairman, you referred to one thing they could be doing that would clearly violate that principle, and that would be to go to the UN Security Council and ask for basically the Security Council to impose the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty on the world by vote of the UN Security Council. Um, you know, th that, that would turn the United States Senate and this committee into a complete afterthought. Uh, you, you would have no role whatsoever in approving or disapproving or even reviewing a decision like that. Is that within the authority of the Security Council? Uh, I think there, there are a lot of people who would argue that it is within the authority of the Security Council to do something like that. Uh, and uh, law review articles are being written, uh, scholars are, are actually addressing this issue right now and, and, call, and you know, some activist individuals and organizations are calling on the president to do precisely that. So it's not a straw man. I mean, the president is actually under pressure from some of his constituency to do what I think all of us would agree would be a very dangerous thing from the point of view of the prerogatives of the Senate. Um, now, as I understand it, the administration is now assuring everyone that relax, we're not going to do that. We're not going to ask the Security Council to impose a, a test ban by, by Security Council vote. I hope that's true. Uh, we need to wait and see what, what the, uh, the resolution that passes the Security Council looks like. But I, I would point out that it's important, most, it's most important not to see what the final resolution looks like. It, what would be most interesting would be to see what the initial U.S. proposal looked like, because that, that will reveal what the administration's intention was. And I point out in my testimony that there, there are two things you should look at on, on the question whether they are seeking to tur basically turn the U.N. Security Council into a global legislature, a global super legislature, to, to impose binding legal obligations on not just the United States, but all the countries of the world. The first indicator would be if the, re if the administration's proposal to, to the other members of the UN Security Council called for action by the Security Council under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. And then the second thing to look at would be wh whether one of the operative paragraphs begins with the word decides. Because if, 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 if the initial US proposal had those two features, they were in fact asking the UN Security Council to act as a super legislature, maybe not to ban nuclear testing, but to adopt some binding measures with respect to the issue of nuclear testing. And I also point out in my testimony that, that you know, it's, it's unusual for the Security Council to jump into an issue and impose some radical new mandate on, on, an, on a country or a group of countries or the world. Usually they take a bunch of baby steps leading up to the radical steps. So the, the interesting question is, is this the first baby step toward the, the ultimate objective of getting the UN Security Council to impose, essentially impose the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty on the world by Security Council action rather than by approval of individual countries of the world of the CTBT. Uh, I, so I don't think this is a straw man. I think it, it's an issue that uh, needs to be carefully considered. But if that's not what the administration is doing, then what are they doing with the Security Council? My impression is that what, what, they're, what they're planning to do is get a statement out of the Security Council that basically tells the world that, anybody, uh, that any country that signed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty is subject to a, an obligation under international law 
not to defeat the object and purpose of the test ban treaty and that a nuclear test by any signatory would violate that obligation. And what you're being told by the administration is, hey, that's customary international law, no big deal. Uh, and, and not just customary international law, but also reflected in something called the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, which, again, we're told reflects customary international law. And um, what, what the administration is leaving out of that narrative is that if you look at the history of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, what emerges is there's been a huge food fight over the last 50 or 40 years between the Senate and the administration over that treaty. And it's been about the prerogatives of the Senate. And the Senate has traditionally considered that the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties basically does not take account of the constitutional role of the United States Senate. And so this whole, this whole notion that under Article 18 of the Vienna Convention, uh, there is an obligation not when, when the United States signs a treaty not to defeat the object and purpose of that treaty, that's a, that's a proposition that, to my knowledge, the Senate has never agreed to. Because the idea would be that when you know, the President, he decides whether to sign a treaty or not. When he signs that, does the United States immediately become subject to international legal obligations not to defeat the object and purpose of that treaty? Yes or no? Uh, because if the answer is yes, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a diminution of the role and the, the authority of the Senate to approve or disapprove the imposition of legal obligations, international legal obligations on the United States. And so one of the reasons this committee has never approved the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties is because of concern about that. Now, beyond that, there's a question of you know, what that provision of the Vienna Convention says is you sign a treaty, you're obligated not to defeat the object and purpose until the country has made its intention clear not to become a party to the agreement. So then there's a second question of basically how do you get out from under that obligation? And more specifically, when the United States Senate votes to reject a treaty, like it did in 1999, does that extinguish the claimed obligation not to defeat the object and purpose, or does, that, does the United States remain subject to that obligation even though the Senate's rejected the treaty? And of course, the executive branch's view on this is, well, we decide. And yeah, maybe, maybe the Senate foolishly rejects a treaty, but we still intend to become subject to it, and so we remain, so the president having brought, having imposed his, this obligation not to defeat the object and purpose of a treaty on the United States by signing the treaty, even after the Senate rejects the treaty, the president can declare to the world, hey, we're still bound, not, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna one day change the Senate's mind. So we remain subject to that legal obligation. That, that was actually the, the position of the Clinton administration after the Senate voted. They went around the world and told countries, relax, the United States, we still have an obligation under the Vienna Convention not to defeat the object and purpose of the treaty, so you know, we, we're still constrained legally. You, you shouldn't worry about what the Senate's done. There were a lot of senators in 1999 and thereafter who thought that was a constitutional overreach, that for the president to say that basically Senate action to reject a treaty is of no account and no meaning internationally. Uh, th that was their position. But there was a big debate about it. President Bush took office. His position was he didn't favor ratification of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. In 2008, he sent a letter, and I submitted it as part of, uh, or not, he did not send a letter, Se Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice sent a letter on behalf of the administration to Senator John Kyle on this very issue about the obligation of the United States not to defeat the object and purpose of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. And what she said was that because President Bush was not committed to ratification of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, the 
the obligation of the United States not to defeat the object and purpose of that treaty had terminated. And then she went on to say, we do not believe that such obligation would arise again unless the treaty was to be ratified by the United States. Okay, so she assured the Senate in 2008 that, you know, without really rejecting what the Clinton administration had said, but she said with the advent of the Bush administration, we're, we're not committed to this treaty, so we no longer have this, object not, uh, this obligation not to defeat the object and purpose. Now, Obama gets elected. He, of course, favors the treaty. Is this thing like a light switch? I mean, the le international legal obligation of the United States gets flipped on and off depending on the state of mind of the President of the United States, and the Senate can reject a treaty any number of times, and that's completely irrelevant to whether the United States has legal obligations not to defeat the object and purpose of a treaty. I mean, that is actually the premise of what the administration's doing, that I think they're going to ask, I, I, my point to you is this, this should be a controversial issue. I mean, the United States Senate should say, wait a second, we don't agree in the first place that just because you signed a piece of paper, Mr. President, the United States incurs international legal obligations. We have, to, we have to approve that before that happens. But even if you take that position, when we reject a treaty, certainly that obligation ends. And then the idea that you, know, you can later agree that it has ended, but then a new president comes in and flips the switch again, and we're subject to the international legal obligation, that should be controversial. But then, to then take that to the UN Security Council and get them to agree that on this, what is in fact a separation of powers issue, what's the relative authority of the, of the Senate versus the president, get the UN to weigh in on the president's side of, the, of, of that argument, to me is, is you know, astonishing. And um, that, that's where we are. I've gone way over my five minutes, so. No, that's all right, I'll thank you. I, I think, uh, again, this is a technical issue. I wanna say to some of the newcomers, especially on the Democratic side of the aisle, um, I'm not here today to debate the benefits or lack thereof of the test ban treaty. I'm here to protect your rights and our rights as it relates to our constitutional role here in the Senate. And I appreciate Senator Cardin agreeing that that is something we should protect. And uh, I want to thank Mr. Crapon for being here, who I think has a very different point of view. And then we'll try to we'll try to uh, thrash this out. But thank you for being here. And if you would begin. Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you. Uh, I appreciate the care and the depth with which you have gotten into really complicated, difficult subjects. I do appreciate that. And the Test Ban Treaty is a complicated and difficult subject. It's one that the Senate really hasn't addressed since 1999. So we have a lot to talk about, and um, I appreciate that this is the start of this conversation. The administration has assured you and us that this resolution will not be binding. It's a non-binding resolution. The administration has assured us that this resolution will not invoke Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. It will not override national law and national prerogatives. The administration has assured us that nothing in this resolution will extend or change 
existing obligations on our country. We're all waiting to see the language that um, comes out of the current negotiations, and we'll all be able to check the administration's assurances against actual text. Uh, I'm asking for a little bit more patience, and we'll get we'll get to the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. If it if this resolution doesn't change anything, it just reaffirms things. Why go to the bottom? And, and why why exercise you? Which is what gives one's antenna a I, rise. I hear right? you. So uh, I, hear you. I don't think they're doing this for the fun of it. I, I don't either. I think there are serious purposes behind it. Yeah. I happen to agree with those purposes. The we have presidents who go to the UN Security Council periodically to pursue UN Security Council resolutions whose purpose is to reduce nuclear dangers. President Bush, George W. Bush, has done this more than President Obama. And sometimes in the past, these UN Security Council resolutions have had a bearing on treaties or protocols or conventions that the Senate has yet to act upon. So what's happening here isn't new. It's not a precedent in my view. But it does touch on a treaty that the Senate did not consent to ratify. So that piece is new and is worthy of consideration. Why do it? Number one, to reaffirm this treaty. This is a treaty that the George W. Bush administration had a low regard for and decided not to pursue ratification. It's a treaty that this administration, maybe future administrations, will seek the Senate's consent to ratify. It's not a light switch that turns on and off. There are lots of treaties that have lingered on the Senate's calendar for a lot longer than the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. I can think of one that was on the Senate's calendar for 50 years. Some administrations had disregard for it, others pursued it. I'm thinking of something called the Geneva Protocol. It was negotiated after World War I, and it dealt with um, prohibiting the use of asphyxiating gases. Um, It lay on your calendar for decades before President Nixon and Ford decided to pursue it. So there's nothing new. Executive branches sometimes pursue treaties, sometimes they leave them on your calendar. I don't think that's an offense to your prerogatives. You have prerogatives too, whether or not you would agree or disagree with an administration that does seek the Senate's consent. I think an important reason to do this is that U.S. national and international security interests are served by the absence of testing. We've got the best conventional capability in the world. We've got the best stockpile stewardship program in the world. 
the longer these moratoria last, the better off we are relative to others. Our allies don't want to see Russia resume testing. They don't want to see China resume testing. And we're looking for more leverage on North Korea because that's the only country left that tests. So reaffirmation of moratoria is important. Reaffirmation of a treaty that this administration believes in after its predecessor did not is very important to the international community. We're supporting our allies and we're supporting monitoring of very low yield covert testing. So this treaty organization has an international monitoring system. It has stations in over 80 countries for complementary technologies, almost 300 stations. It's a parallel public network to our national technical means, which are of course secret. Having these two parallel networks working together is a great deterrent to covert low yield testing. And this resolution seeks continued support funding for this parallel network that supplements our own. Because the longer the treaty is in limbo, the more people will walk away from this monitoring network that we need to detect low yield covert testing. I think these are good reasons, sir, to pursue this resolution without causing offense to the Senate's prerogatives. Thank you. Thank you, and I appreciate that testimony. And again, uh, I appreciate you um, heralding the merits of the treaty itself. And I, I want to just say again, I'll probably say this 10 times throughout the process, I'm not here to the debate the merits. Um, I would ask you, and I'm only going to ask a couple of questions and really defer to Ben and then step back in later, but then you would agree, it seems to me, that if the administration took steps that changed policy, in other words, I'm not debating the policy that we have right now, nor the Bush administration had. I mean, the policy has been that we haven't tested, and it's perfectly appropriate for administrations to determine that policy. But if that becomes something that's legally binding without going through the treaty process, especially in a case where a treaty has been turned down, that would be, you would agree that would be inappropriate? I do think that would, I do think that would offend this, the Senate's prerogatives. And I, th I think what we're doing here, if I could, is, is, you know, we had a situation where the president recently was going to stipulate a no first strike policy. Um, his advisors came to him and said that would be very inappropriate as it relates to our allies. You may agree or disagree with that, but he decided not to do it in that manner. The purpose of this hearing and the purpose of our interactions, and I would like to ask uh, unanimous consent to enter into a record, in, into the record, a letter that I received from the State Department 
by Julia Fryfield explaining what they were doing and also my letter to the president that was written subsequently, if we could, just to lay a track record here. But the purpose of this, or to lay a record here, uh, the purpose is just to ensure that that's not the case. Again, if that's the policy of this administration, it's the policy of this administration. Are there things, I would ask Mr. Rademacher, and I will move on, that short of citing Chapter 7, as has been alluded to in the letter, um, are there things the administration could do short of citing Chapter 7 that would move us along a path of uh, making something legally binding over time? Yes, Mr. Chairman, I, I believe there are. Um, when, you, when you refer to Chapter 7, essentially what, what you're saying is uh, when, when, the, when the Security Council invokes Chapter 7, it, it's, that signifies that the Security Council is trying to act in a binding fashion. It's trying to impose a legally binding obligation on all the nations of the world. Uh, and we have been assured in this case that the administration is not going to, to do that, and I, I assume that's true. Um, but as, as I was discussing at the, uh, toward the end of my, my opening remarks, uh, there are other things that a Security Council resolution could do without invoking Chapter 7 that would tend to impose binding legal obligations on the United States that I would argue don't exist today. And um, I, I, I think if, if members of the committee would, would, were to study the issue, they, they would also take the view that uh, th these binding legal obligations do not exist today, and, and I, I think you would actually quarrel with the notion that the Security Council is telling us that they do exist. Um, and I'm referring specifically to this obligation uh, not to defeat the object and purpose of a treaty that the United States has signed. Uh, again, as, as, I, as I said in my, my opening remarks, the notion that, that such an obligation exists uh, really traces back to Article 18 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. That is a convention that was submitted to the, to the Senate in um, 1972, I believe, by the Nixon administration. Uh, or not, it was submitted in 1971, uh, voted on by the committee in 1972. The committee was prepared to approve it, subject to a reservation that basically made clear that the United States has no binding legal obligations under international law, under any treaty, until the Senate approves the imposition of that. And Article 18 is one of the provisions of the Vienna Convention that is inconsistent with that notion because what Article 18 says is the moment the President signs a treaty, the United States incurs, becomes subject to a binding obligation under international law not to defeat the object and purpose of that treaty. So my first point to you is one of the reasons that since 1972 this committee has refused to approve the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties is the very issue we're talking about here, whether when the President with a stroke of a pen, signs a treaty, he imposes a binding legal obligation on the United States. The convention says yes. The executive branch says yes, not surprisingly. Every president, Republican or Democrat, takes a maximalist view of his authority under the Constitution. Um, this committee traditionally has said no, no you don't. No binding legal obligations without our approval. That's what the Constitution means. Okay, so that's, as I understand it, they're going to ask the Security Council to affirm that the United States and all the other signatories of the CTBT have this obligation not to defeat the object and purpose of the treaty, which is a, a principle that traditionally this committee has rejected. Chairman, yes, sir. If I may, what Steve is suggesting, the concept that he asks you to embrace is a radical concept. It's radical. It's a concept that says you can sign a treaty 
on day one and be free to violate it on day two. You're under no obligation to respect the treaty that you have just signed. That's what he's, that's what he's proposing here. No administration has ever adhered to this before this Vienna Convention that he's referring to was negotiated and finished negotiations 36 years ago, nor in the 36 years afterwards. When you sign a treaty while you're awaiting its entry into force through the constitutional processes of advice and consent here and other processes elsewhere, you sign it with the intention of adhering to it. This is wild. If he's proposing you sign something and then you're free of any obligation, I don't think we, we can haul in some constitutional lawyers here. Yeah. But if the, let me ask you this. If the Senate rejects the treaty, votes it down, and my guess is, I don't know this to be true, but my understanding is, if it were brought forth today, it might actually be defeated by a larger margin than it was in uh, the last time it came up. I, I think that that's what people like you tell me. You hadn't told me that, but others have told me that. So if, if the Senate has rejected that, does that not have some bearing on the, the, the future of that particular treaty? And, and I might add, the administration, to my knowledge, has never even brought up trying to bring it back to the United States Senate in seven and a half years, including the time frame when the Senate was controlled by Democrats. Mr. Chairman, I'm, an, I'm a big fan of having very lengthy, uh, in-depth hearings on this treaty. A lot has happened since the Senate declined to provide its consent. Uh, we have a stockpile stewardship program now. We didn't then. We have this parallel monitoring network now. We didn't then. Both our NTM capabilities. But you're sort of moving off subject here. <laughs> if you get back to the fact, does it change the characteristic? I mean, I know you love the treaty, and I think we'll have you in here if we ever debate that. But the fact is, the Senate rejected the treaty. So does that have any effect well on taken. the things that you're saying? Point well taken. I'm not going to ask you to think by analogy here. So the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, uh, rejected the Rome, the International Criminal Court, something you're familiar with deeply. So the administration notified the committee. The administration sent a formal letter to the depository of this convention, the United Nations. Uh, a senior official in the administration sent a letter to the United Nations Secretary General clarifying our intention to pull away right. and that we would be under no obligation. And the depository then put the United States in brackets in that treaty as being a state that no longer felt in the least way obligated to respect the object and purpose of that convention. 
it went off the Senate calendar. Now look at the CTBP. The administration, George W. Bush administration, clarified it was not a fan of this treaty and it wasn't going to seek its entry into force. The administration sent a letter to a senator in this committee back then. And there were public statements along those same lines. The treaty remained on the Senate calendar. You didn't send it back to the executive branch. Mm -hmm. It's on your calendar now. The administration didn't formally notify the depository of our intent. It just said, we don't like this treaty. And by the way, we're also not going to take actions that defeat its objects and purposes, even though we don't like it. I think those are, uh, those are good points. I apologize to the committee members for taking so much time on this issue personally. And I'm going to turn to our ranking member, Senator Cardin. Um, I, I would just say that uh, it would be good, I think, uh, on an issue of this importance if we actually had some consultation as this language was being drafted. And I know we've received some letters of assurance. Um, and I would just say to, my, to the ranking member, I don't know when would be appropriate, but it seems to me that there's a process here that, um, that relative to transparency, relative to consultation, and potentially when a treaty has been sitting before the United States Senate for some duration that automatically it goes back if it hasn't been ratified. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to talk to you about those things and other committee members down the road. And again, thank you for the indulgence of time. Well, first, Chairman Corker, thank you for your passion for the constitutional protections of the legislative branch of government, particularly the United States Senate, because I share that. I've spent my entire adult life in the legislature, uh, in the state government, the Speaker of the House, and now in, in, the, in the, the Senate. And I don't think there's been a year that's gone by, whether there was a Republican governor or a Democratic governor or a Republican president or a Democratic president that I didn't have problems with the prerogatives taken by the executive branch that I thought was disrespectful of the legislative branch. So this is not a new subject. And I do think we all would be stronger if the Senate exercised its prerogatives more frequently. Doesn't mean we're going to reach conclusions, but I think having a healthy debate on treaties, I think your suggestion about bringing these, we've had a lot of treaties that have been around here for a long time. There are, some are not terribly controversial, such as the Disabilities Treaty, and I hope the Law of the Sea is not terribly controversial. And I, I understand that we may not have the support for uh, ratification, but I don't think we do the Senate a service by le leaving them in limbo for all these periods of time. And of course, we also have totally non-controversial treaties that have passed this committee that we're having a hard time getting through on the floor of the Senate. So I, I think exercising our prerogatives would be uh, something that we should do and figure out a way to get that done. I just want to respond to the point of executive actions. Uh, there are executive agreements, hundreds entered into every year by every president since the beginning of, the, of our republic. Uh, and so that's not an unusual issue. There's a huge difference, though, between an agreement signed by the president and one in which the Congress has joined either through ratification or through passage of legislation. And that is the next president can change it if it's not in law. 
If it's not ratified, the next president can do whatever he wants to do. If it's ratified, then he has to follow the protocols of the treaty. If it's in statute, he has to follow the statute. So there's a huge difference. And, and, and Mr. Crapon, as you pointed out, President George W. Bush could have, if he wanted to, disavowed our, our uh, signature on the treaty, that we no longer be bound by it. And if you pointed out, we no longer would have been subject to the terms of the, um, uh, as you call it, object and purpose would no longer be effective against the United States. So just by a single action, the president could have done that. He chose not to. And uh, I think that is noteworthy that he chose not to do that, keeping open the policies because, again, I come back to the point that for over now close to three decades, it's been the policy of America that we believe that we should not test and that other countries should not actively test nuclear materials. That's our, been our policy. And it's been not terribly controversial, quite frankly, because of the, the capacity that we have and that active testing is not that critically, not that important to us in, in, in our capacity. So I'm not sure what uh, the concern is right now since whatever is done, and we have to wait to see the final action, I agree with the chairman completely on that. Uh, if what Secretary Kerry has said now in writing, that there'll be no legal impacts, then what is the prerogatives taken away from the Senate if the United States can get the P5 to acknowledge that nuclear test bans are a good idea and the treaty should be still considered, considering that two of those P5s have not ratified the treaty. We're not alone. China hasn't ratified the treaty. What is the, what, what is the risk factor here for that, carrying out a policy of our country, leaving to the Congress by passing laws or the next administration by simple action the ability to negate any obligations we have. What is, what is the risk factor here? To the Senate prerogatives, I'm referring to. We'll see once the language is finalized, but I believe the risk factor will be zero. The risk factor of a resumption of nuclear testing by Russia, by China, by Pakistan, by India, continued testing by North Korea. North Korea are immense. So I see no balance here. U.S. national security interests, international security interests are served by a reaffirmation of this treaty's object and purpose, by a reaffirmation of moratoria, and by a vocalized sense of support for treaty monitoring that deters very low yield covert testing. Risk, risk factor? So, so it won't surprise you to hear that I, I disagree with much of I what know, Mr. Give you Mr. Crapon has just said. Look, if, if the Security Council passes a resolution that amounts to what, what we here would call a sense of Congress resolution that just says nuclear testing moratoria are a good thing, it would be a bad thing if anybody tested a nuclear weapon, I don't see any threat to the prerogatives of the Senate. But my understanding is that's not where the, this resolution is going to stop. My, re my understanding is this resolution is going to go further, and it is going to try and do something that, that is legally significant. 
that is, goes beyond sense of what we would call sense of Congress. And that is they are going to try and embrace, get the UN Security Council to declare that all signatories of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty have an obligation not to defeat the object and purpose of the treaty. Now, they may do that directly, or th 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 there's also talk they'll get a, the P5 to make a declaration about that, and then somehow the Security Council will approve that or, or uh, incorporate it by reference. I, I don't know what. But if that's what they do, they're doing more than just expressing an opinion. But that's and, 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 let, let me and so this notion that doing that doesn't change the legal obligations of the United States. That is, a, that is an accurate characterization of the view of the executive branch. The traditional view of the executive branch is the President signs a treaty and the United States incurs an international legal obligation the moment he does that not to defeat the object and purpose of the treaty. The traditional view of the Senate has been, no, it doesn't. But, uh, but and, and, and let me, the, the you know, pre presidents can sign any kind of crazy treaty, okay? And, you know, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, a lot of people like it, but, you know, we could elect a president who wants to deport every illegal alien in the country, and he could sign some treaty with some country about facilitating that. And then are you going to credit him when he comes to you and says, well, I'm just, you know, I have this international okay. legal obligation not to defeat the object and purpose of this treaty that I've signed, and so that, that's what I'm doing here by deporting all these Ill illegal aliens. Uh, you know, I, I think I just you, you to need to sort of think through whether, Mr. Crapon says it's a crazy idea to say that yeah. the United States doesn't have to abide by a treaty it's signed. All I'm suggesting to you is the President's already signed that with the treaty protocols in Vienna that, uh, that, that we are subject to the uh, object and purpose. He's already done that. So if he does it again, another President does it again. The point is that the next President can reverse that in, in one minute. That's the point. The Congress can take action in one minute. Nothing prevents us legally from doing that. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm not, uh, but I, I think there is risk factors here, and you have to balance the risk factors. And uh, I am all on board with the chairman on the oversight of the United States Senate and this committee to preserve our prerogatives. He has my full support on that, because I have yet to meet an administration that doesn't try to grab as much as they possibly can and uh, ignore us as much as possible. That seems to be what they learn in President 101 when they go to school. I, I submit that's what's happening. <coughs> and, and, and if I could, I mean, we have some insights as to it could have changed this morning, but we have some insights based on leaks and discussions that have created concerns. And, and Mr. Crapon, for what it's worth, it does go beyond what you just said, and so we have concerns, and maybe this hearing will cause the administration to take a different tact and not bring forth language. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, and I've got a copy of, of some language that is, is, is concerning to me, and maybe that's not the language that ends up being submitted, and maybe this hearing will be helpful in ensuring that Senate prerogatives are not, are not uh, dealt with inappropriately. Sen uh, Senator Risch. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, uh, I share uh, Senator Cardin's view on the uh, prerogative of a first branch of government unlike him, I serve both in, in the executive, as a chief executive and uh, in the uh, legislative branch. But, uh, you know, I'm, <coughs> th th this, this whole discussion is absolutely astonishing to me. Um, the, the, we're, we're mixing the constitutional prerogatives, uh, the constitutional law of America with the right or wrong of the treaty that we're dealing with here. 
before we can even have this discussion, we need a set of rules. Uh, Mr. Graybond, if I understand you correctly, I, and I've been sitting here listening to this, that somehow the signature of the, the head of the second branch of government binds this sovereign country uh, in a treaty with another nation is something absolutely foreign to me. I, I mean, th this, if, if your, if your uh, uh, analysis is correct, that the treaty that sat here for 50 years, we were bound by that uh, because the United States Senate didn't reject it. That somehow the, the signature of the head of the second branch binds America, even though the Constitution is crystal clear that it can't be uh, binding until it is ratified uh, by the United States Senate. Now, your legal foundation for that is language in another treaty that was not ratified by the United States Senate. So this, this unratified second treaty bolsters the first treaty and, and you put all this together and somehow we're bound. I mean, we gotta get a set of rules that we all acknowledge are binding as far as whose job it is to do what uh, in this democracy that we have before we can even have this discussion. You know, I'm, I'm always, it, 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 uh, it's incredibly frustrating when you have a discussion with a member of the foreign media. They come to you and they stick a microphone straight. Are you gonna back the president on this? I said, no, I'm not gonna do that. He says, how can you do that? This man's the head of the, the, the this man is the, the leader of the free world. And we said, wait a minute. You're talking about a man who heads the second branch of this uh, great country of ours, and his job is to execute the laws and policies as enacted by the United States Congress and to oversee the spending that is done by the first branch of government. The first branch of government is the uh, bastion of this country. It was the first, not the second or third branch of government established by the founding fathers, and it was intended that this first branch would uh, do the things that I've just outlined, not the second branch of government. Now, I agree with Senator Cardin that, uh, uh, that uh, CEOs always uh, reach a, as far as they possibly can, but you can't overreach the Constitution by which you're bound by simply signing a, uh, uh, a treaty that, uh, that is not ratified and bolstering that treaty by saying, aha, I signed another treaty that wasn't ratified, that says that we're bound, that the first treaty that I signed is binding us. I mean, th this is nonsense. This is absolute nonsense. And, and I think we, we for, and forget the, 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 uh, uh, the, the right or wrong of a treaty. Uh, I, I think probably uh, in, when, the, when the Senate uh, debated this, there were hours, hundreds of hours of debate as to whether it was right or wrong, and we could have that same debate today as you point out things are different. That, that's got nothing to do with the legal binding nature uh, of the president's signature on a treaty. And for me to sit here and, and, and listen to you say that him simply signing it binds us. W without, without the first branch of government, notwithstanding what the Constitution says, without the first branch of government ratifying that, that somehow, uh, we are bound uh, by this is just is absolutely astonishing to me. Senator, it uh, seems to me you have a gripe, a big gripe, with customary international law. You have a gripe. Well, well what what bind what <laughs> what 
customary international law binds me as a united states senator i am not responsible to anyone except the people of america and the courts of america not to some court convened in europe because i violated customary international law that is nonsense absolute nonsense for us as americans who consider us members of a sovereign free nation on the face of this planet no i don't have a gripe with it i absolutely reject it <laughs> i know you do the word bind bound that that's your word it's not my word here's my understanding of how customary international law works. And you can get much more authoritative testimony on this. But when a country signs a treaty, it doesn't sign the treaty in order to violate it. It usually doesn't. There have been instances where this has occurred, but not many. Most countries, when they sign a treaty, it's their intention not to violate it, not to disregard it, not to defeat the object and the purpose of the treaty. So the fundamental object and purpose of the test ban treaty is not to test. Now, whether you're bound or not, if you have an executive, well, if you have a Congress, a Senate, a Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and a Senate as a whole, that doesn't like the obligations of that treaty, you can reject it. If you have a president, an executive, who doesn't like this treaty, the president can, through a series of procedures, that have been developed over time, clarify, we're no longer going to follow the object and purpose. So the binds that you talk about are informal until a treaty is consented to ratification in this Senate and enters into force. But that's nonsense, Mr. Trayvon. There is no, there is absolutely no precedent for what you have just stated. You know, I had a professor like you in law school that could make an argument for anything if he believed the ends justified the means. My time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, <clears throat> Mr. Chairman. Uh, first, I, I want to applaud your vigorous assertion uh, of the Senate's prerogatives. Uh, and your understandable concern that we may be looking at a separation of powers issue here. Uh, I have a strong view that I have asserted throughout my 24 years in Congress that there is a reason the founders created a separation of powers, and I believe very strongly in the Congress and certainly in the Senate, uh, pursuing its separate co-equal branch of government status the importance that the founders gave them. And I have done that, whether it be in questioning of administration witnesses, in the sponsorship of legislation that administrations have not liked or have opposed, uh, and in the votes that I have taken. Uh, so I appreciate very much your concern. Having said that, uh, 
I think as important as safeguarding the vital role uh, of the U.S. Congress and especially the Senate where international treaties are concerned, I think that the apprehension in this case um, may be misplaced, and of course we'll have to see the language of the UN Security Council resolution. But uh, I believe that our national security is actually uh, better served uh, by the appropriate uh, set of understandings that uh, are being uh, maybe put forward, and I'll, and I'll wait in terms of judgment to actually seeing the language. Since 1992, successive administrations representing a broad swath of public opinion from both parties have sought fit to continue to observe and support the ban on nuclear testing. And while we're certainly not here to reconsider the Senate's decision with regards to the CTBT, I would suggest that many of the objections raised back in 1999 are less valid today. The advancement of America's science and technological abilities, the needful activities of the CTBT organization and the international monitoring system, and our enhanced national technical means suggest that we have less cause for concern today, from my perspective, than when the matter was first discussed in the Senate. Indeed, it is, in my opinion, in our national interest to support the continuation of what has been a hugely successful international moratorium on testing. Reaffirming our commitment to the objectives and purpose of the treaty in doing so ensures that conditions that undergird, undergird this observance continue to exist for the foreseeable future. A nine-binding resolution that does leave open the possibility of our country unsigning the CTBT in the future in the unlikely event that resuming nuclear testing is necessary to our national security, I think is appropriate. And so uh, in the time left, let me just ask one or two questions in, in, in pursuit of that. And Mr. Rademick, it's good to see you. I enjoyed our time together when you were in the House of Representatives on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, if the CTBT is so injurious to the U.S. national security, uh, why didn't the Bush administration design the treaty as it did in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court and the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty? Uh, uh, thank you. First, it's nice to see you again, Senator Menendez. Um, the, um, you know, the, I, I heard the argument that the Bush administration unsigned the Rome Statute. Uh, why didn't it unsign the CTBT? Uh, I, I, I would commend to you the, the, re the letter that I submitted as, as an attachment to my testimony, the letter from Condoleezza Rice uh, signed in 2008. Uh, she was being um, asked by Senator Kyle essentially the same question. Why haven't you unsigned the CTBT? And if you read the letter, and, and I, I hope it may, is made part of the record, uh, her answer is basically, we don't need to unsign it because we, we've done that through other means. And then she, quote, she cites the, the, all of the, the public statements of, of the Bush administration, by Bush administration officials including me, uh, to, to the effect that the United States does not intend to join this treaty, we have unsigned it. And she said, having done that, we don't need to send another letter. Uh, Mr. Crapon was wrong when he said that the, the UN has put in brackets uh, the, the name of the United States uh, on, on the Rome Statute. That's not true, you can go look online. They put a footnote, they said, you know, the United States signed this treaty, and there's no eraser in, in the world of treaty signature. I mean, the United States well, signed it, the they point, put a footnote and said we got this other letter. The point is still the same. Well, whether you unsigned it or whether through your statements, executive statements, declare that in essence you are not pursuing it, the, re the, 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 the result is that you are uh, not bound in the way that a ratification of a treaty would bind you. 
again, I, I would commend to you the Rice letter because I think what she says in that letter is we have unsigned this. All right, Mr. C uh, Mr. Crapon, do, uh, do we have leadership role here that encourages other states to support the CTBO organization? How important is the continued viability of it going forward? And, and doesn't the IMS provide a helpful complementary layer to detect and thus deter nuclear testing that supplements our own national technical means? Senator, if I could quickly offer a rejoinder to Steve on this point. Let's grant that the George W. Bush administration unsigned the CTBT by lesser means than the Rome Statute or the ABM Treaty. A future, the Bush administration's unsigning, if we were gonna call it that, doesn't bind the future administration. It can pursue this treaty. So even if we were to grant this, it's irrelevant in the case of an administration that sees value in this treaty that remains on the Senate calendar. With respect to this international monitoring system, it's crucial because everybody has bought into it. With respect to our parallel and, and better system of national technical means, it's secret. We can reach a judgment based on secret data. Some people will, will agree with us, other people will take issue with us. But everybody will have data from the international monitoring system and every country that's a party to this treaty can reach conclusions about compliance. And we're in a much stronger place if there is cheating. If we go ahead and continue to fund this system and pursue entry into force of this system. The system's ready, it works. We know it works, it works well, but it's in limbo. Limbo is not a sustainable state. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and before turning to Senator Ruby, I just want to say one more time, I'm not here to debate the merits of the treaty itself. I'm trying to protect everyone's rights here as it relates to being a U.S. Senator, and I appreciate Mr. Crapon's advocacy here. I have no reason to want to debate that today. I want to just make sure that we have a process that's not being um, undermined. And we won't know that until we get the, the language itself. And I think Mr. Crapon himself, who advocates for this policy, would agree that anything that undermines that through going to the UN Security Council with inappropriate language that takes away our authority would not be something that would, would be good for the United States Senate or our country. So that, that's all I'm for. Mr. Chairman, I understand that, but okay. in pursuit of the full prerogatives we all have, some of us no, do want to debate. I, I, I got that, and uh, you've got the microphone, and you're a United States Senator, and you can do whatever you wish, and I respect that, and thank you for that. Senator Rubio. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I want to return to the process, and this important, I think this is a fascinating hearing and an important debate about the role the Senate plays as a check and balance on the executive, which I think is as important as it's ever been. I think the argument, just to summarize the argument I've heard today uh, is the fa from Mr. Crapon, if I'm wrong, you'll 
you'll point this out, is there's no doubt, and no one disputes that under domestic law, the United States is in no way obligated because it hasn't been ratified by the Senate. The secondary argument is, however, under customary international law, at the moment that President Clinton signed into this agreement, the United States is under an obligation, under Article 18 of the Vienna Convention, to not do anything in contravention that goes against or defeats the purpose of anything that uh, we have signed on to. That, that's the argument. And so even if we're not domestically bound by this, the argument is that under Article 18 of the Vienna Convention, we are internationally to not to do anything in contravention of the agreement. Therefore, you don't want to use the word bound, but in essence bound uh, by that provision. I find the flaw in, in two points. Number one is, the first is that by the signature of the president alone, that somehow enters us into this agreement. That may be true in North Korea because they have a supreme leader. That is not true in our constitutional system of the United States. We do not have a supreme leader. In order to get something, in order to bind the United States or to enter us into anything, requires not one step, but two steps. The first step is the signature of the chief executive, the president, and the second is the ratification, the affirmative ratification of Congress, not simply a affirmative rejection and sending back for comments. So my argument is we have not entered into this agreement, even if you want to do it here to Article 18, which by the way, we also did not ratify our Vienna Convention, but um, the argument I think falls apart because the simple signature by our president in our system, under our sovereign constitutional system, does not in and of itself enter us into anything until it is affirmatively ratified. Otherwise, what's the purpose of the Constitution? At that point, basically, the president can bind us under customary international law anytime he's, he or she signs on to any document in the world, irrespective of whether Congress acts or doesn't. And if, and if Congress chooses to approve it, well, that's a nice touch. Well, that, I, I don't, that's not my reading of our constitutional order, and I hope that's not where we've reached. The second argument is the role of the S Security Council at the United Nations and the impact that any resolution therein would have, again, on the United States, in addition to Article 18 of the Vienna Convention. And there is a dispute or a debate out there about the, again, the legal binding associated with a UN resolution. And it's this argument between whether it's a decision of the Security Council, basically an affirmative decision, and there, there's an, a notion out there and a strong argument by many that a decision of the Security Council is binding pursuant to Article 25 of the UN Charter versus a recommendation of the Security Council, uh, which would not, which would lack binding force. And hence, I think, some of the discomfort you see from this committee, because there is no engagement with the executive branch that I understand, and perhaps you've had some deeper engagement about the specific language that they're pursuing. And again, the difference between a decision and a recommendation is in the eye of the beholder. And so where we find ourselves here is that at some point in 15 years, in 10 years, there may be occasion where a future president decides the U.S. does need to test, but the argument against this will be twofold. Number one, you are violating customary international law under Vienna, and number two, you are violating a U.N. resolution 15 years ago, which was a decision of the U.N. Security Council, and hence why the language is so important, especially given the track record of the UN. All of this within the context of our constitutional system, where some of the arguments that have been made here today basically say your constitution is nice, and when it comes to domestic issues, it's great, but on international issues, there is international law, both customary and, and through the UN Security Council, that supersede your constitutional order. And that is an argument that I hope we never accept in this chamber, whether we are Republicans, Democrats, or independents. Because at that point, we truly have given over our sovereignty in a way that I think is dangerous for the national security 
of the United States. And, and I'd welcome both of your comments. Senator, um, the language of this resolution is crucial. I, as I told the chairman, if this resolution imposed any new obligation on the United States, I think it would be an infringement. What about reaffirming what you argue is an existing obligation? If it reaffirms existing obligations, if it reaffirms the treaty text, the plain language of the treaty text, I'm more than fine with it. I support it because I support the treaty. But wouldn't that be another way to bound, bind this country to a treaty that we have not ratified under our system of government. In essence, that is a backdoor way of ratifying a treaty that a president could not get through the constitutional order, and so he went around it and said, fine, I won't bind you under our constitution, I'll bind you under the UN Charter. I completely disagree with that, Senator. Well, then what's the point because of doing it? I, allow me. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree with you because the Senate still has to provide its advice and consent. This treaty can't be circumvented except by a UN Security Council resolution that provides directive language. The UN Security Council decides, it imposes. Check out the language. This calls upon count, excuse me, language that says calls upon, does that do the same thing? I bring in a panel of but does it? Lawyers. But, I, but, but it does not, in my opinion. That's hortatory. Hortatory. You, you have passed so much legislation that has hortatory language. You know the difference between hortatory and directive. I'd also want to suggest to Senator Rubio that the Congress has had a role in this whole process. It began, as Senator Cardin said, with legislation in 1992. Uh, one of your former colleagues, Senator Hatfield, was a big part of this. So we have national legislation as well as a treaty. The question that, that is worth wrestling over, a president signs a treaty. The treaty doesn't enter into force the next day. Um, sometimes it takes decades. So what obligations are we under, is the Congress under, in that period of time between when a president signs and when the treaty enters into force? Are we free to do exactly what the treaty says we should not do? Is that okay? If you think that's okay, then you are contravening centuries, centuries of law. Now, well, we did that when we founded our country too. I mean, we could I comment on this? The old order. Because this, this is completely incorrect. Um, fr first of all, uh, Mr. Craven is looking through one end of the telescope. He's saying, do, do we do we have to? Do we have the right to completely violate a treaty the day after the president signs it? The other way of looking at it is if the United States is doing something one day and the president signs a treaty and says we can't do that anymore, do we have an obligation to stop doing what we've been doing just because the president signed a piece of paper? That, that's another way of looking at the same issue. And the view of the Senate on that has always been no. 
Until the, until the Senate approves a treaty, it's not binding on the United States in any respect. That's the view of the Senate. Now, th that's not the view of the executive branch. Mr. Crapon says for centuries this has been established, that one, once the sovereign signs a treaty, it's binding. You know, that, again, that's not true. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to belabor the international law here. There, there's a thing called the Restatement of Foreign Relations Law of the United States, which is basically a statement of the law, international law. 1965, the second version that came out, no mention whatsoever of this obligation. 1969, 19, um, uh, the Vienna Convention signed. What CRS told this committee on a very important document you ought to look at uh, that was, that was uh, submitted to this committee in, 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 in 2001, a study of the, the, the treaty-making process, and it's sort of the Bible for your lawyers, by the way. If you look at it, they make the comment that, as in the case of many treaties, the executive branch conducted the Vienna Convention negotiations without congressional observers or consultations, although the subject matter was of clear concern to the Senate. They go to Vienna, they, they sign this thing that includes Article 18, something not re reflected in the Restatement of Foreign Relations Law of the United States from 1965. The next version of the restatement comes out in 1987. It includes now this notion from adopted from the Vienna Convention. But it goes on to say, in the, in the reporter's notes, that this, this principle um, is less familiar to common law writers than to si their civil law counterparts. So, I mean, we're, we're a common law jurisdiction, so it's basically saying this Mr. is kind of Chairman, a European I'm law. I'm going to insist somewhat on regular order here. I like this free flow. I enjoy it. I enjoy members interacting. I don't always enjoy um, witnesses not allowing the other witnesses to finish. So I just urge us to have some semblance of order here and allow each person to be able to complete their thought. I also want to underscore that this, as the chairman pointed out, is, is focused on the process and prerogatives of the Senate. This is not a new subject. My staff pointed out to me that in 2001, under Senator Helms, who was chairman of the committee, the blue book that was printed by the committee spelled out very clearly the lineage of how treaties are treated between signature and ratification. This is exactly as we are talking about today. This is not a new subject. This is not a new interpretation by an administration. This has been the practice, and the Senate has done nothing active to, to dispute the responsibilities we have between signature and ratification with the prerogatives that remain until ratification. So th this subject is one that I think is very worthy of a hearing, but it is clearly uh, not a new subject and one in which we have to function as a nation through our chief executive. Uh, I, I don't look at Article uh, 1 or 2. I look at us working together, and we do try on this issue. I know we're not talking about the substance of the issue, but on this issue, it was a joint legislative executive policy to prevent nuclear testing that was uh, taken to the international stage. And now we're debating how the United States leadership should be maintained, which I would hope we would find the legislative and executive branches working together. So let me, if I could, I appreciate the introduction and interjection, and I respect very much the fact that we have allowed this to be a little freewheeling. And so... Um, and I think it's been very informative. So what I think we'll do is, is be a little more closely aligned to regular order and then come back around for uh, a second round if people wish to do that. And I thank you for your input. With that, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, uh, you know, I, I think as, as I understand here, part of what we're talking about is really speculation. 
because we really don't know what's being proposed in terms of um, a U.S. position with respect to a U.N. Security Council resolution or the language. And so while I think it's important for us to send a strong message to the White House that um, we all believe the Senate has a very important constitutional role and we intend to play that role, um, we're really speculating at this point about what may or may not be in language um, for this resolution. So I appreciate everybody's speculation about what that may be, but I think it's important to say we don't know at this point. That's correct. So, Mr. Crapon, let me just ask you, I think you've said this, but assume the administration secures a UN Security Council resolution and P5 statement along the lines of reaffirming what's in the CTBT. And assume that a future president determines that the U.S. should conduct another nuclear test. Not something I think we should do, but assume that happens. What would he or she need to do to relieve the U.S. of its statutory or signatory obligations? Senator, we're talking about Senate prerogatives, as you should. But there are Senate prerogatives associated with the withdrawal of a U.S. commitment to a treaty. And I don't see a standard here. And if you are concerned about Senate prerogatives, it might make sense to clarify standards. So in answer to your question, I believe the proper standard is what the George W. Bush administration did with respect to this Rome statute on the International Criminal Court. The Bush administration very forthrightly came to you, came to the American public, went public to the international community, said, we're out of here, and conveyed a very formal letter to the UN Secretary General, the depository of the treaty. Now that seems to me to be respectful of the Senate's prerogatives. Okay, thank you, Mr. Radiker. Do you agree with that? Uh, In 30 seconds or less. Yes, the Bush administration did that. I would argue that with respect to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Uh, no, no, that's with, not with the, I'm to, asking the underlying question. What would a future president, what should a future president do if they decide that they do not want to follow the U.S. signatory obligations of the previous president? Yeah, in that, yes, the president can get out from under that obligation. Okay, that's thank you. Um, now. Mr. Chairman, with all due respect, I understand that you want to keep this on process, but I think it's very hard to talk about an issue like this and keep it totally on process. You're free to do whatever you thank wish. Thank you. I intend yes, to do sir. that. I know, I know you will. Thank you. So, Mr. Crapon, you listed a number of countries that um, might like to test, some of which already are, at least one. So, can you tell us what countries you believe would benefit most right now from testing? China tested 50 times, Senator. We tested about 1,000 times. Um, China was very reluctant to sign this treaty and still hasn't ratified. Right. So 
there are some things they could do. Uh, Russia doesn't have as good of a stockpile stewardship than we, as we do. I'm convinced of that. Now, we have tunnels and we have facilities above ground at the Nevada National Security Site where we do experiments that do not produce nuclear yield. I, I suspect other countries with nuclear weapons do too, but they may feel more constrained than we do. So they might benefit too. Okay, so that's two countries who um, I think it's fair to say are not our allies when it comes to a nuclear arsenal. Um, so would you agree that strengthening the norm, this is essentially what Senator Menendez was asking, strengthening the norm against nuclear testing makes it harder for other nuclear states to develop more sophisticated nuclear arsenals? Absolutely. Do you disagree with that, Mr. Radiker? I, I, you know, I, I have no objection to the, the current situation where countries are observing a moratorium on nuclear testing. The, the, the current concern I've expressed in the past is one where uh, a moratorium would become legally and binding on the United States because uh, we don't know what will happen 50 or 100 years from now. Uh, and, and so okay, but I'm, things I'm to strengthen not the notion of the moratorium are, are fine, as long as they're not legally binding on, on the United States. So you would agree then that it is probably in the interests of the United States and our allies to see um, norms that would discourage nuclear testing by other nations. Uh, Non-legally non binding uh, you know, political, uh, uh, political pressures brought to bear on other countries not to test, I, I have no problems with that. Okay, and I just have, I know I'm out of time, Mr. Chairman, but I just have one more question. Are our allies, those who rely on the U.S. nuclear umbrella, are they supportive of our efforts to strengthen the norms against testing? Absolutely. They would be rattled by testing by China and Russia, and they're not real happy with the only outlier that still tests, North Korea. And Mr. Rademacher, do you agree with that? About the feelings of our allies? Uh, I, I think... I think our allies are an important element of this equation. Um, they depend, some of our allies uh, depend uh, very much for their security on the U.S. nuclear umbrella. And so while they're not, I think none of our allies today would be enthusiastic about a, a, an American nuclear test. I think uh, if any, I can cite a number of allies who would be deeply troubled if, if they became, became concerned about the reliability of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. Uh, I, the country of South Korea, did you know, Two-thirds of the South Korean people today think South Korea de should deploy its own nuclear weapons because they live next to North Korea, which keeps setting them off, and, and they, they feel that they're in the target zone for North Korea. I, if we don't want South Korea, where two-thirds of the people favor this, to, to go down that road, uh, we, they, the South Korean people need to be reassured that the American nuclear umbrella exists and will protect them in a crisis. And th that's sort of my concern about well, I permanent prohibition that, that it I'm could put us in a place where we're not able I, I don't to think maintain that reliability. Mr. Rademacher, I haven't heard anybody on this panel argue that we should take make this resolution at the UN legally binding. I haven't heard anybody say that. I haven't heard the White House say that. So I, I appreciate that there may be 
conspiracy theories out there that suggest that that's going to happen, but I, I haven't heard any good um, evidence to suggest that that is in fact the case. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Udall. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, and I think this has been a um, very interesting discussion, and, and I know, um, Mr. Chairman, you visited our national laboratories in New Mexico as some other senators on this, and we do a lot of this work that, that uh, Mr. Crapon talked about in terms of stockpile, stockpile stewardship and safety, uh, reliability of our, our nuclear stockpile. So I, I welcome this discussion on the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Treaty is important to reach international nonproliferation goals. I believe the United States should ratify it, and I'm disappointed we haven't been able to have a serious conversation or even a hearing about ratification. Every administration since President Clinton has observed the moratorium on testing, and I'm proud that the science-based work behind the Life Extension Program at New Mexico's National Security Labs has made a moratorium on testing possible, and that's what I talked about with, with um, Chairman, um, um, Chairman Corker. In the absence of testing, the labs have carried out science-based efforts to maintain the weapons stockpile safely and securely. This work has also increased our understanding of physics and other sciences while giving our top scientists and engineers the ability to apply these efforts to other national security interests. And Mr. Crapon, you, you raised this um, issue. You said, you said, I believe you said, Russia is not as good as we are on their stockpile stewardship program. Um, and I would ask you to, to rate that. I mean, if you could do it on a one to 10, saying we're 10, or how would you, how would you compare uh, our ability in this period where we haven't tested our stockpile stewardship programs? Senator, I, I need to declare an interest. Uh, I previously was a consultant to Sandia's um, uh, international security program, so I was involved with uh, cooperative threat reduction work and their cooperative monitoring center. Nobody is in our league. Nobody. Now, the Russian labs took a huge hit when the Soviet Union dissolved. Uh, the China, China's labs, I'm guessing, are better than the Russian labs. But I also want to point out something that our labs have done in the past and might do in the future. We had this big wrangle over a treaty that set a threshold for underground testing. This was a treaty that was signed by President Nixon in 74, President Ford sent it to the Senate. There were still issues. We didn't know that much about the geology of the test sites over in the Soviet Union. There were disputes that the yield, this threshold was being violated, assertions that it was being violated. And we really had trouble calibrating. And so what the labs did, this was uh, President Reagan, pursued this, and President George H.W. Bush made it happen. He sent the labs to the Soviet test sites, and we invited their guys to come to our test site. 
and we calibrated underground yields. And we gained satisfaction that we could do this. Indeed, we came to the conclusion, a reasonable conclusion, that assertions of violation were not right. And President George H.W. Bush uh, persuaded the Senate to consent to ratify this treaty. I think this can come in handy again in the future if we ever get to that place. If we ever get to the point where on balance the Senate believes this treaty is in our national security interest and we love where the detection has gone. It has just driven down yields, driven down detectable yields. But maybe we need we need a little bit more. Well, the the um, you still haven't done the comparison. I guess you don't between China, Russia, United States on stockpile. Is there, is you I just I, I don't have a confident. Yeah, but answer. you would you would say that we're tops. China's probably second, and and Russia's third. Is your estimate at this point? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I have additional questions, but I'll, Senator Markey's here, I'll put them in the record. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Senator Markey. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for having this hearing. I think it's a very important subject, um, obviously, and it is one that uh, we need in order to clarify what the law is on this issue. Uh, in August of 1986, my amendment passed on the House floor uh, calling for a moratorium on U.S underground nuclear testing as long as the Soviet Union did not uh, also uh, also abided by that. So that passed uh, by about a 100 vote margin on the floor uh, of the House in August of 1986. Uh, we also passed a, a ban on anti-satellite weapons at the time. Those two amendments as they passed the House are the two amendments that largely drove Reagan to Reykjavik because otherwise it was inexplicable what he was doing there in the first week of October with no preparation uh, beforehand. The, the, we were closing in on these assets, okay? And by 1992, uh, the United States uh, basically just stopped underground nuclear testing. The Russians have as well. So that was the beginning of the end of underground nuclear testing. So what we're talking about now is really what do we do in order to make sure that North Korea and others uh, do not uh, escalate their underground nuclear testing. That's at the heart of this issue. Here's what Senator Kerry's letter to us this morning says. The administration says, the administration fully respects the Senate's constitutional role in treaty ratification and the actions currently being considered at the United Nations are consistent with that role. We remain committed to securing the Senate's advice and consent on the U.S. ratification of the CTBT, the entry into force of which would result in a durable, legally binding test ban and bring into full force the treaty's vital verification mechanisms. The actions we are pursuing with the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, nuclear weapon states, and separately in the United Nations Security Council are in no way a substitute for entry into force of the treaty. As you know, the President made CTBT ratification a U.S. priority in his 2009 Prague speech, and I have also been clear on this point. Although 
the policy of the last administration was not to pursue U.S. ratification of the CPVT. That has not been the current administration's policy. We are not proposing and will not support the adoption of a U.N. Security Council resolution imposing a legally binding prohibition on nuclear testing. Rather, we are pursuing a political statement of the NPT's nuclear weapon states, all of whom are CPVT signatories affirming their view that a nuclear test would defeat the object and purpose of the CPVT. As a matter of international law, treaty signatories are obliged to refrain from acts which would defeat the object and purpose of a treaty unless they make their intention clear not to become a party to the treaty. A future administration could make clear that the United States no longer intends to become a party to the treaty, in which case the United States would no longer have such an obligation. This is well-established principle of treaty law and is consistent with the constitutional role of the Senate in U.S. treaty practice. The resolution we propose would take note of the political statement by the NPT's nuclear weapon states. It would not impose that view as a legal matter or place any other legal prohibition on nuclear testing on UN member states. At the same time, such a statement could encourage other countries that have not yet signed or ratified the CPVT to take steps to do so. The proposed resolution also seeks to reinforce the existing moratoria on nuclear testing and strengthen the CPVT's verification regime. Could you talk about that, Mr. Uh, Crapon, just so that we again zero in on the political rather than legal nature of what the President and John Kerry are talking about? Senator, uh, I appreciate your history on this subject. What we're hearing from some members of this committee is a radical new legal theory, which is that a state is absolutely free to violate a treaty that it has just signed before its entry into force, which would, by the way, nullify its entry into force. This is wild. And nothing that I can think of at the moment would so seriously undermine U.S. leadership in the world as to propound this theory. No, no administration has embraced this theory. When our presidents negotiate and sign treaties, it is their intention not to violate them. We're unlike other countries in that respect. And we're proud of it. So I, I hope that this committee will not go down the route of embracing a radical notion that, oh, we just signed that treaty, but we're not obliged to adhere to it's so you agree this is just a political statement that they're making. <laughs> you agree with that? <laughs> I do. Okay. Well, that's very important because that's the nub of this uh, case right now. And by the way, the argument that was made on the CPBT that we could not verify, well, it wasn't true in 1974. We knew that India was testing. It wasn't true when Pakistan did it. Uh, it. And it's not true today, especially today. Now we have 
a sophisticated system that picks up anything that North Korea does instantaneously. The question is whether or not we want to construct a regime that will tighten the noose around North Korea and other rogue nations uh, that continue down a pathway that China and Russia and the United States and others do not, in fact, go down, which is additional testing of nuclear weapons. So that's really what this whole debate's all about. It comes down to North Korea to a very large extent, and to the extent to which uh, we want to ensure that we are using every possible mechanism at the UN uh, that is still consistent with the prerogatives of the United States Senate, I think that we should pursue them. Uh, we have to let the world know, uh, we have to let North Korea know that they are isolated. Uh, and that they can expect the noose to continue to tighten. And if we can get China and Russia to go along with that as a political statement, I think it helps to make the world safer. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. If I could, uh, while you're still here, um, I, I would like to say that uh, while this is about the process, it's not about the substance, uh, since the speech in Prague, this is the only hearing that's ever occurred on this topic. So uh, you talk about hortatory. I mean, <laughs> Chairman Kerry, uh, who just sent us this letter, never even had a hearing on this, okay? So I do want to say that this is, uh, uh, this certainly hasn't been on the front burner. Uh, it hasn't been pushed by this administration, and there have been legitimate concerns about a going out the door obligation, and I don't think we would have received this letter that we received today that states that they're not going to do anything that's binding. Now, I would like to follow up on your question, if I could, and ask. I, there is a uh, can I just the radical you do, view. Before you there, do that, can okay. I just, again, yeah. praise you? Uh, I, I don't want I wasn't to. seeking praise. No, I, I'll take I the praise. I but I, I, I'm glad we're having okay. this hearing. Okay. And, and there is no question, I think, amongst all of the Democrats that you have conducted this committee in a way that does give a full airing to every important issue and full respect for the Democrats to be able to participate with you in that process. And this is just a further example that I just want to emphasize that. Thank you. So here, here's what I'd like to, I, I think where there's disagreement, Mr. Crapon has a, a point of view, Mr. Rademacher has a point of view, and we had two committee members who had a point of view relative to the object and purpose issue. I would just like to ask this question, and, and, and you know, Senator Sheen said it's based on rumor. Actually, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think there have been some legitimate concerns, and I think we're airing those, and hopefully what's gonna happen is when the administration works things out with its partners at the UN Security Council, it will not be something that goes a step further and takes away uh, our obligation, our, our steps on our own responsibilities. But I would like to ask Mr. Rademacher this. Uh, affirming this, this, the, let me find the language here that was just read. purpose and objective. Mr. Rademacher, would, would you agree with what Mr. Crapon just said relative to its binding effect and what Secretary Kerry affirmed in this letter? I mean, if we're in agreement there and they end up uh, coming down that path, then that would be wonderful. But do you agree with that, that it's not in any way legally binding if the next administration decides to withdraw? I'm, I'm confident that the next president um, could find a way to, to terminate the obligation not to defeat 
I guess I should say the alleged obligation not to defeat the object and purpose of the treaty. But the Security Council action, I think, is intended to make it more difficult for him to do so. I don't think it makes it legally impossible, but it makes it harder for, for the next president to do that. And, and I do just want to emphasize that I believe there, there's a difference of view between the two branches of government on this issue of whether the United States incurs a legal obligation the moment the president signs a piece of paper. It's not that anybody's suggesting the U.S. wants to immediately violate treaties that the president signs, but there are many times when the, the president signs a treaty that would require the United States to stop doing something that it's been doing for years. And the question is, does the United States incur a legal obligation by the stroke of the president's pen to stop doing things that, that it's been, been free to do in the past? And I think the answer to the Senate on that has always been that it does. And of course, the case before us is even more complicated because it's not just a question of what's the initial obligation. There's also, even under the, under the, the Vienna Convention, uh, this obligation exists until, until the signatory has made clear its intention not to become a party. And so for the CTBT, the question is, what's the meaning of the Senate action in 1999? And then we have the Condoleezza Rights letter where she said, yeah. the view of the president is we're not intending to be bound. And so where, do, where does anyone come to the conclusion that today, with both branches of government having spoken, uh, now you know, I, I realize we have a different president who has a different opinion, but does this change the, the legal obligation of the United States under, under the customary, what's alleged to be the customary international law reflected in the Vienna Convention? I, I think it's a pretty tenuous argument to well, say we, that. We, I mean, we kind of live in that world and we have that same disagreement over the War Powers Act and numbers of things, right. I understand it. But let me, I, I would like to get back specifically, since you have so much knowledge on this, affirming their view that the nuclear test would defeat the object and purpose of the CTBT. You've seen this letter. In that language that has been sent to us this morning, is it your belief that if that is the path that is followed, uh, the Senate prerogatives as it relates to treaties and affirmations of international agreements have or have not been, a, been uh, a infringed upon? I, th I think that statement is irreconcilable with what Secretary Rice wrote in her letter to, to Senator Kyle. Uh, and I think it's uh, irreconcilable with the position of the Senate that the United States has no such legal obligation. Mr. Brayton. Mr. Chairman, we elect presidents that have irreconcilable differences with their predecessors from time to time. But that doesn't nullify a treaty that remains on the Senate calendar. You still have the prerogative to not consider this treaty, uh, reject it, not have hearings on it in eight years. Well, I, you, you started, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and that's a good thing. Yeah. Mr. Chairman, I just really want to thank both of our witnesses. They are they're a great resource to the committee, and I think this hearing uh, was long overdue. And I thank you for calling it. Thank you, and thanks for allowing us to have it on short notice and for changing the time. Uh, the business. Uh, There'll be questions that will follow, and uh, we'll keep the record open until the close of business Friday. If you could fairly promptly 
um, especially with uh, this potentially going to the UN Security Council fairly soon. If you could fairly promptly respond, we'd appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. And with that, uh, the meeting is adjourned.